0: All right. Beth Gardner is here today. How are you doing, Beth?
1: Good. How are you? Thank you for um, having me.
0: Thank you for being on. You're all the way from Pittsburgh.
1: Yes. yes. So you
0: you found the podcast over Instagram and you reached out. Um, I and to come I on.
1: did. Thank you very much. I did an intensive research, as I explained to you. So uh, I tracked you down. And fortunately, you're just about four hours north of me. So that makes it even better.
0: Yes. Yes. Thank you so much, uh, for, for reaching out and, and doing the research and finding me. I appreciate it. And, um, your story is, uh, we've, we've been talking a little bit. Your story is, um, is quite amazing. I, I think, um, I think it will help a lot of people and and you're helping a lot of people currently. You're currently a life coach. Um, and you specify, maybe I'll let you, uh, kind of explain what you specify in.
1: Yeah, I'm a life coach. I'm following two different paths of life coaching. I'm focusing on those that have been addicted by addicts. And what that means is people that have lived a life without an addiction, um, but have had addicts either in their personal or their professional lives and have had uh, deep rooted negative um, results, emotional results from that. Um, There are a lot of Uh, resources available for addicts out there there are multi-million dollar um, businesses multi-million dollar places for people to go but when I was doing my own research and I won't go into too much detail now because I know we'll go into it later but um, I wasn't able to find resources for someone like myself um, who has lived pretty much a straight life lifestyle I'm an athlete live very healthy but I seem to no matter whether it's sports um, you know, through education, through professional, there are always addicts around, it's just inevitable. Um, and so from my perspective and experience, I now want to be able to help other people that are like-minded like myself. <clears throat> In addition to helping non-addicts, I'm also helping those that are facing cancer or cancer survivors or caretakers of um, those with cancer. Uh, Why? Because I am officially 20 years out of cancer as of October of 2020, um, and I wanted to wait until I was thoroughly healed from it, had done enough educational research, and was really ready to um, help other people. And this pandemic, as it's done for so many, has provided me the opportunity to actually launch this, this life coaching business that I've actually been working and doing research on in Pittsburgh at CMU for the past two years.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I think that's like, uh, with the non-addicts and with the cancer, but I think the non-addicts is a huge gap starting with that. Um, the people that are affected by it in in my personal life and usually, you know, similar to cancer, like usually the average person would have some sort of connection to addiction. Um, and I think that's, Super great that you're doing that to help support those um, non-addicts and as well as the cancer. Um, But we can jump right into uh, kind of your story and how this all started, if you'd like.
1: Sure. Um, I, in 2000, as I had explained to you, I was diagnosed, it was in um, October of 2000, one year after I had retired from the sport of rowing. I had been rowing in the United States throughout Canada and uh, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and I had a 2.8 centimeter lump in my right right breast at the time. I was literally uh, one month from having turned 30 and I was literally three weeks away from running what would have been my first marathon. Uh, Many rowers uh, from my community participate in other sports outside of rowing, such as triathlons, marathons, and other sports. Um, and so I had always wanted to try a marathon just one time. So I was actively training for that marathon. And because of the training method that's required, um, I started to lose a lot of weight, which a lot of marathon runners do. Um, and I became a much more leaner version of myself prior to that, because of rowing, because of seven years of lifting heavy weights as well as endurance rates. Um, and all of the physical activity that was required when I was training at a national team training center, um, I had become very much built like a swimmer, right? Endured right. swimmer at large shoulders. But thanks for the marathon training and getting smaller in size, I happened to notice a sizable lump in my right breast. So, long story short, I had a lump back to be done. Um, in November of 2000, then followed by two rounds of two different types of chemotherapy and radiation. So by the time uh, July of 2001 came along, I was done with all treatments. So that's how that sort of uh, became about. Um, And then it was a non-genetic form of cancer. So the, the student within me, the lifelong learner, the closet intellectual that i am i was curious as to how on earth someone that's perceivably in you know picture perfect health right if you're training at a national level regardless of what sport it is you know you are in really good shape and at the time i was literally at 12 percent body fat i was at my my rowing weight um i was always very lean for a heavyweight rower but i was i was in peak condition so how did someone like myself get cancer you know and i had noticed through the last 2 years of my training so that was 97 and 98 i was not it was as though i had peaked i was not performing anymore my my testing scores were were buried um i was either on i was off and i couldn't figure out what was going on and i thought i was simply overtrained um and having started the sport later Compared to a lot of other people, I started at my senior year at Drexel University. Um, I was, when I started at the, the elite level, once I graduated Drexel, you know, it's pretty fast and furious pace, and I thought, well, maybe I just, I should have been training back when I was in high school, and I'm just not able to keep up with these girls that, you know, have been spending their entire most of their lives rowing. So, right, uh, I did research. Um at, at libraries, at the time I was in Philadelphia, so I had gotten all my treatment done at Penn Hospital, and I had done research uh, thanks to having the internet and then the Philadelphia Library. And uh, I came across a number of books, one of which is by Louise Hay, and we could link that to this podcast that you can heal your life. For sure. You know it it she's is now deceased, but she uh, thankfully written a number of books and studied metaphysics. And understanding how we can make ourselves sick while our brains can heal our body, we can also make our bodies sick, uh, regardless of what we food we intake. And, and by the way, I was eating a very regimented diet. You know, my body wouldn't have performed to the level it had if I was eating fast food. You know, it was very regimented diet. So through her books, I was able to connect the dots that, oh, okay, breast cancer. Breasts are viewed as a nurturing part of the female body. If, it, if the female body is not nurtured, if it's abused or if it's starved in the breast area, women are likely to get breast cancer. Now I'm speaking about women that do not have it in their gene pool. So that's where I connected that dot. Okay. Um, and I did that research. And by the way, this research went on for you know, a good couple years um, while I was still working full time.
0: So when you say starved or not nurtured, could you expand on that?
1: Sure. So I had been raised, been fortunate to be raised in a very good academic system. And it wasn't just geared for academics, but it was geared for leading athletes along. So I was fortunate to have been growing up in an atmosphere, for example, where I was training with athletes who I didn't know at the time, but later on became professional. Um, Kirk Angle is one of the individuals, worldwide wrestling Olympic champion. Wow. Um, he's two years ahead of me. And he was a very much a hero to me at the time, particularly in high school. But later on, once I heard he was going to the Olympics, It was because of him and his success that it dawned on me. Oh, after college, you can continue on with sports and actually, you know, make a national team of some sort or even Olympic, Um, neither of which I've made, but that's okay. Um, So it was through the... I'm sorry, your question?
0: Oh, it was just uh, about breast cancer. Um,
1: Yeah. Nurturing. Yeah, so I realized from having grown up in a a very good school system where there was quite a bit of pressure put on us, um, that contributed to me putting so much pressure on myself that it manifested in breast cancer. Also, um, I was surrounded by alcoholism. Um, And from my perspective, particularly growing up, there were people that had fought in World War II, the Vietnam and Korean War. And I associated a lot of people struggling with alcoholism as those that had actually fought in those wars, because when they were fighting those wars, it was long before a lot of the drugs that we have here today, for example, um, drugs to help bipolar, depression, schizophrenia, a lot of those drugs didn't come into full effect until early 1970s so for people to have coped not just through going through war, but also for any type of genetic um, health issue that they struggled with they would turn to alcohol or they would turn to recreational drugs so i associated my experience being surrounded by it whether it was in a household in the family or even you know in an academic setting simply because these people had you know been in the military and this was recoping. and it was a way of life um you know it wasn't uncommon back when i was growing up for people to be smoke still smoking indoors you didn't question it, Um, so i just assumed all of that along with you know pressure that i had put on myself as well as these high standards that were expected um, were the reason for all of that it was just constant performance, constant excelling, but I was never resting. The key is I was never resting. I was never focusing necessarily on my emotional needs because we were focused on making, you know, winning the rates or winning the game or getting the A or getting into an Ivy League school or hitting a top grade in the SAT. For example, you know, some of the, my friends, we all started studying the, for the SAT in the seventh grade why because they wanted us to hit that score out of the ballpark wow you know so by the time we were juniors really early we'll just take that score like i didn't even want to take it again in my senior year i'm like let's, enough is enough we'll take that score wow. so there was so much and it there's nothing wrong with that but i just was never trained particularly in this when i was doing sports there was not a lot of discussion about resting and resting from my perspective, is part of the whole training package. It's part of the whole training, weekly, monthly, you know, biannual and annual routine. You have to schedule in the rest and you have to actively rest. Yeah. So there there wasn't a lot of that going on. So what happens when you do that? You're in fifth or fourth gear most of the time of your life. And if your body's not liking it, it's going to rebel in one way or the other. And for me, it was through breast cancer because again it wasn't genetic i even was tested um it's not in the gene pool i did that because i've got a niece um, who's now 19 and i wanted to make sure she knew you know whether or not she to be on alert about it or not does that make sense
0: it does yeah so would you say that along with the physical um The physical effects of not taking rest and not recovering, would you say there was the mental rest, like you said, of like not being aware or not taking care of your emotions and just focusing on the task at hand?
1: Exactly. And I'll give you examples of that. When I was rowing, again, I started my senior year at Drexel. So I got a little taste of that camaraderie um, college rowing. which a lot of fun. Um, Then I had my coach at the time suggested I send in my testing scores, which included an erg score and some lifting tests, and I got invited to an elite training camp. At that time, was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It was great. It was fun. It took place um, before my graduation from Drexel. So as I had mentioned to you last week, I never went to graduation. I had my diploma sent to my mother, and I went but I had no idea that the type of treadmill I was gonna be stepping into. Um, And the the protocol for the training at times, just on on an average level would be about six hours a day. Um, An example of that would be in Colorado Springs, one winter season, we ended up lifting four hours in the morning. We would take a lunch break. We would do an abbreviated two hour weightlifting workout in comparison, using some of the same routines that we had used in the morning. So, wait, had- you did four
0: hours of lifting in the morning?
1: Four hours of heavy lifting. We were doing pyramid lifting, which you start at two reps, you go up to 12, and then you go back down on every exercise. I brought protein bars with me. Um, a couple of times I brought a change of a top to change into because I was just sweating profusely. Um, but that was sort of, that was training. And then, like I said. How many know, days a
0: week would you guys be doing this?
1: Uh, we had a day and a half off.
0: Um, <laughs> Sunday so and half be Saturday. One day off,
1: and then we would usually be one afternoon off. But, you know, and then, and then we would do the two hours. And then there would be a break. And then we would um, swim for an hour. And it wasn't like recreational swimming. It was sometimes he would put us into teams and we would have to somehow race. Which was, for me, comical for myself, because I know how to swim to survive. But I, to I I'm a competitor swimmer.
0: So. <laughs> 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 Out there <with> the floaties?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we weren't on a floaties with, like, you know, martinis and beer. Uh, you know, at first That's I thought, good. oh, great, we're swimming. I can just float you know because yeah, yeah. Of hydrotherapy and he's like no no yeah. no we're gonna you know <laughs> so yeah, that was an example of just one of the days you know we had another time when we were training in colorado where we had to climb parks park excuse me pike's peak which is fourteen thousand feet we couldn't go all the way but there you can go fairly high close to that and um, the idea was to um, go up as quickly as you can and come back down and you had to finish you know within a three and a half hour Time period. So what that really meant is a majority of us would be running down. You know the slippery, <laughs> uh, rocky trails of Pisces. so the, okay, <laughs>
0: so,
1: yeah. So that, that was trails. That's I that's thought you meant a like, climb for one second. Yeah, it's so yeah. A lot, I had to walk up. I didn't jog up. I didn't dare jog up. But you um, know, by the time I realized that. I was cutting it close to the deadline that I was supposed to be down there. I'd start jogging down, but that's an altitude too. And so that's, that's not an easy, easy task.
0: So, so I don't mean to back you up, but um, you decide to go to that camp. At, like that's your last year of university and um, you go to camp instead of graduation. So do they take you in right away? Was that kind of the point where they're like, okay, you're on the team or how did that go?
1: I, I no, you don't do that. Um, you had to earn your way on the team. And one of the ways in which uh, that they recommended that you even be considered is to buy a single, a rowing boat for one person. Um, and I had funded my own way through Drexel and I had received grants. Now, while I was at Drexel, I um, worked as a bartender at a very high-end restaurant called the Stripe Bass uh, that used to be located on 16th and Walnut, 16th or 17th of Walnut. And I also worked at Moss Rehab Brain Injury Hospital. That was my co-op. So I had some money left over um, from having to self-fund that whole tuition, which was $14,000 a year. Um, So I was able to self-fund and buy my first boat. So that, that was sort of a key training tool for me to not only become proficient in the rowing stroke, but even be considered then to compete with the big girls. And let me also re-clarify again, I never did make a team. Um, I strive to make a team, but I never did earn an actual birth on the team. I just trained with all the people that had been to the Olympics or had been on the national team for a number of years. I mean, it was an extraordinary experience for someone like myself who quite frankly, again, had only started my senior year at Drexel, you know, my life, yes. I had been a runner and I had been a dancer. Those are my two key activities, ballet, tap and jazz. Um, I did play basketball and softball and anything height related. Of course I played for a little bit, but, um, I was more of a, just an all around kind of an athlete average. So, so this when was you were ra- extraordinary for me,
0: yes, it would be. So when you raced, so you were like, you raced single.
1: Right. Most most of the events when I started out, because that was a a required training tool, you had to prove, then you had to prove yourself in the single to be considered in a team boat. If you could prove that you could move that boat and you could finish within the, you know, the first in, in a race final, like the first top six, you would be considered. We had an event periodically throughout the year, I'm going to say no more than three times called a speed order. And it's a, an informal racing event that's organized very much like a national event would be where you have a 2000 meter race. Um, and you race each race. Uh, there usually, there's an initial race, then there's a semi-final, and then there's a final. And your goal, of course, is to make it to the final, which would be the top six people. And so I had the opportunity to uh, participate in those, again, they're informal racing, um, periodically throughout each year to just not only find out where I'm at, but let the coaches know this is where I'm at in my development. Um, and so, again, that was extraordinary for me because I'm once again, tra- you know, to racing against people that had been to the Olympics in right. team boats, in the eight, in the four, regardless of what boat. And you know, these are very seasoned, world class athletes. So it was a great gauge for me to figure out, okay, if this, is this even feasible for me? You know, mm-hmm. um, Cause I was always 20 pounds underweight compared to some of the other girls, which was, an, it's a whole other struggle, but um, yeah, that was just, just extraordinary. So that's sort of what the protocol was to try to get into a boat to make the team.
0: That's very cool. So like, so during your seven years, um, like doing it professionally, was that just like, is that how you make money? you just, you're constantly racing and constantly training?
1: Well, there it's not professional for starters. It's an amateur okay. sport, um, okay. it, at least it was back in my time. I'm sure some of the people on the team now get uh, much more money. Um, I had to self-fund it. So I was not on the team, so I did not get any money, um, which was a whole other challenge with itself. But at the same time, you know, I had already funded my education college education, I graduated, I did, I did well considering. So um, being that I was ana- highly analytical, I was able to figure out how to self-fund, you know, that rowing sport. And I did work part-time um, to be able to, you know, sustain and 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 self-fund the sport. So there was no funding for me. Those that had been on the team um, were currently on the team would receive some sort of support funding but i'll be honest with you i don't think it was anything more than 30 35,000 a year which okay. you can live on
0: it is yeah, not yeah. a
1: glamour sport you know you you don't see rowers on any cereal boxes on any food products um right. it's nothing like you know the nba the nfl the nhl the x games it's not even like that you know it's, it was a very much an amateur sport so you the you To be able to succeed in it, you really had to have that burning passion, burning desire. You had to want it um, to do it. You had to be able to find the money, find a job that was gonna hire you and allow you. And at the time, and I'm sure it is still today, Home Depot was one of the top places for those aspiring Olympians to work at because they would provide them the funding but also give them the hours. So I had some teammates that were actually working at Home Depot, which was, quite frankly, a blessing for some people, um, you know, to have that.
0: What sort of funding would they provide?
1: Um, Monetary funding, health insurance. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was paying for my own health insurance. Uh, I was paying for everything. My living expenses, I paid for my travel to any regatta, you know, um, hotel. So once you made it on the team, then some of that was absorbed through the U.S. governing body. But even at that time, and again, I don't know if it's different now, but um, people were not allowed to seek out funding. You know, you couldn't go to a company, say like Coppertone, and and see if they would give you product or monetary donations. I say Mm. Coppertone simply because I was on, outside in the sun so much that i would i would try to put on sunscreen you know so you couldn't i did i was sponsored by product with power bar but um yeah that was just product and i was thankful for it because i i really lived off of those but um you you could not obtain monetary sponsorship
0: right yeah that's i was going to ask that next that
1: Yeah. Cause it may be very different now. Um, I'm so far out of the loop. I don't know what the governing rules are, but I do know that, you know, so the bottom line is, you know, you really have to have a burning passion. And I knew it was a purpose for me at that point in time to get involved in that sport. It was the hardest sport I had ever tried. And again, I had played a variety of other sports. It was always average, um, was always an average student. And so for me, this was like a lot of fun, and again, the people that I met that are living now throughout the globe, um, that are doctors, attorneys, um, physical therapists, ha- got an MBA. They're living literally all around the world. Are truly living dynamic lives. They are world leaders. You know, they're they're living extraordinary lives. They have very happy families, and it's for me that was like one of the best um, benefits from it all. The medals don't really, I mean, I gave all my medals to my brother. In fact, I have, I'm in his room right now because, um, for the sake, but I gave all this. This hangs in his room with all of the Steelers fans that he has. He loves the Steelers, the Pirates, all all the Pittsburgh stuff. But I I was like, I was like, I sent all this to him. It's like I sent my mother my diploma and I'm like, okay, you can have these (laughs) because I don't need them. You know, at the end of the day, it was the wisdom that I gained and the people that I met. Um, that That's where the true grew. benefit was. That was what the benefit was. And I always say, you know, the people that you meet in college are going to be your lifelong friends. But wow, you know, to have had the uh, an athletic experience long after and to, again, have met these extremely talented. I mean, when I was rowing, I was just working. I wasn't getting an MBA you know, a PhD, I wasn't going to law school, I certainly wasn't going to go to medical school because that wasn't my calling. Um, So the fact that they were able to manage all that at such a high level and be so successful today. um, Wow, what an opportunity for me to have, you know, been involved in that. And again, it's the same like minded individuals that I grew up with, you know, in K through 12. These people, I, I know people that are leaders around the world. Um, so I've truly been blessed in that area. But with, with that comes a price. And unless you are trained to rest and you need to think about resting, um, yeah, it, it can backfire. It can come back to haunt you. And for me, it came back through cancer. Um,
0: yeah. Is that something that you feel you had to learn over time? and that you have learned now that um, how your own, like, I think it's very personal, it's very individual, but um, how to recover, how to rest.
1: Right, I had to learn how to rest because, you know, I was over, I was, when I look back to those last two years prior to retiring in December of 1999, and I retired at a speed order and I will never forget it. I went down to do that speed order. It was in December gray skies. It took place in Langley Pond, South Carolina, not just over the border from um, Georgia, near Augusta, Georgia, which at the time was where the training site was for Scully, people that rode with tours. But I remember sitting at the starting line at the final, and, and something said to me, this is it. You're done. This is your last one. Just go down the course, and you're done. And I remember at the time, one of the national team coaches, um, Ted Allison Nash, who in my eyes is like the Sean Connery of rowing, um, anyone can Google him and find out, said so to me, I've never seen you look so relaxed, as I'm just sitting at the starting line, I, normally I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not paying attention to other competitors, I'm just focused on my own game, and I'm just sitting there like looking around, and it's because I knew I was done, but I didn't know why I was done, and it was truly a voice, whether you believe it's the universe, God. The man upstairs, however you choose to perceive it, my gut said that's it. And that was the last race. And thank God I stopped. Um, because again, one year later, I got the diagnosis of a 2.8 centimeter lump in my right breast. Had I not stopped, and I knew I wasn't gonna earn a, a national team seat, you know, certainly wasn't gonna go to the Olympics, but had I tried to push through. And make it to the 2004 Olympics. I, I don't think I'd be here today. I would have died at some point, you know, wow. because you know I was that overtrained. When I look back to all the blood work that was done, like at, for example at the Colorado training site, they had the ability to do blood work and we did VO2 testing and all this stuff. And the evidence is all there. You know, I had high blood cell, white blood cell counts. Um, I was overtrained. I mean, it's just. Looking back on paper, it was all there. Something wasn't right.
0: How did you feel mentally at that time?
1: Um, At which which point?
0: That time where you um, just at that race and before retirement, like those last two years, were you feeling like mentally drained?
1: Yeah, I, I actually took the fall of December 1999 off. And, um, some friends of mine suggested it because I thought I was swinging into, um, an overtraining shutdown. My body just shut down. It wasn't performing. Something wasn't right. And I, it wasn't a depression. It wasn't a seasonal depression. Nothing was happening. It wasn't performing. And so I just took off. That was a sign to me that I should have gotten help and had mm. a, a physical, but you know, women at that age weren't trained to, particularly back then, to go get a mammogram. That's the furthest thing from my mind. I just Not thought, high. oh, I'm overtrained. I took that whole fall off. Um, and I felt better, but I never felt 100%, which was strange. And by taking off, I mean, like I didn't participate in any events. Um, I didn't go to the head of the Charles, which I had been to a number of times before. Um, I didn't do any of the main, main events. I didn't go to a speed order. I jogged lightly, did some weightlifting, but that was it. So the decline was there.
2: Right. And
1: I remember working with the late Igor Grinko at the time who had invited me down to Augusta to, to, you know, work out with a group. And I was on and I was off. I was on and I was off. And he's like, how is it that you're so strong? You're inconsistent. How is it that you're inconsistent? I could lift a lot of weight just as much as anyone else, but I wasn't, the body wasn't producing. And that's what it was. And I had so much muscle mass. If you think about a swimmer, you know, these swimmers in the Olympics, you see their bodies. They're just, they were very much an upside down triangle, but they had these shoulders and it's all this muscle mass. So that there was no way I would have known that there was, you know, again, a 2.8 centimeter lump there. Right. No way I would have known. And it's not something that they thought, you know, they directed us to either. Right. We weren't, you know, trained to go get mammograms, particularly at that young age.
0: So when you get the diagnosis, what sort of things start going through your mind?
1: (laughs) Um, At the time, I was driving, I had visited my sister's house in the Northeast section of Philadelphia. And I was working at the University of Pennsylvania. I had gotten a job there and I was driving. From, I visited her house sometimes on weekends. And I would, I would drive in to the city and go to work from there. And I was literally driving down North 611 and I was within a couple blocks from what is known as Albert Einstein Hospital. It's, it's many blocks up from Temple University, but I'm in that area. And then my phone, cell phone rings. I've got my Starbucks mug and my phone rings and it's a breast surgeon. Now I had gone to a couple of breast surgeons throughout the area just to get a general MRI. In Philadelphia, I'd done that. I had people that were recommended to me to go to, and I did, there were three specific ones I did, in addition to getting a complete physical, just to find out again, why am I so tired? And you know there is this lump here, but what is that? Well, that's when I found out, she said, Uh, the the surgeon said to me you have cancer um, breast cancer we're going to need to schedule for you to come in so we can plan your surgery and so I was in the left lane at the time on six eleven, and I pulled over to a gas station that wasn't far down the road and um, I continued to talk to her and then I just hung up the phone took a couple breaths and then I the first person I called of course was my mother just to let her know, and thankfully she was she was home and on the phone. She's been a nurse since 1958, um, so as most nurses have odd schedules. So fortunately, she was meant to be home, so I gave her the news as well.
0: Right. Um,
1: so it was shocking, and I remember specifically doing some sort of, you know, laughter, like shock laughter that came out of my mouth. Like <laughs> you're kidding me. You know, and I pulled over. And thankfully, you know, having been an athlete and competed at, you know, a high ranking level, but also just being used to being in a very competitive setting, I was. I knew how to calm myself down already, uh, and I knew how to navigate to get to that gas station so there wasn't an accident or anything of that nature. Right. That that worked well for me. Yes. I didn't freak out.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah. That could have been. That could have been pretty bad, right?
1: So yeah, it was getting shocking. that news while you're driving. Yeah. And then I had to get to, to work after that. So once I pulled myself together, and of course I was late to work, I finally got to work. Uh, but then, of course, that day was blown because I had to talk to the to their scheduling committee and make the appointment and do all this other stuff that comes along with it. um yeah, it was it was a shocker because it wasn't what I was thinking.
0: Yeah. So, so where does it go from there? I mean, then you start getting treatments and-
1: Right, so she immediately, she had done that left thing, lumpectomy, which is how we got the diagnosis. So, you know, within a week, I'm uh, two weeks I'm scheduled surgery. Um, and I remember saying to her, oh, we need to schedule it after the marathon because I'm running the Philadelphia marathon. You know, at that point I was up to 18 miles uh, and I was pretty much on target for what I wanted. And I said, well, well how about we do it after the marathon? She's like, no.
0: <laughs> More <laughs> important things.
1: She's like, I will to see you <laughs> in the <laughs> operating room <laughs> in two weeks. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we're going to do an immediate lumpectomy. And I remember like lying down. And she had to bring in two tables because that's just how large my shoulders and lats were at the time shit originally i was on one table and she's like this isn't big enough she said i'll be right back she runs out she gets another table this is why i love her and she <laughs> brings it in <laughs> it's on one. but i remember you know i'm strapped down and my my arms are out to either side very much like uh you know a woman that's um about to give childbirth and get it get a cesarean section and i thought to myself i'm one week away i should be tapering <laughs> For the <laughs> yeah.
0: Still thinks about the marathon.
1: That's so get this over with, and then I'll. <laughs> you know, and that just gives you an idea of like any athlete that's been doing it for years. I mean, even yeah. someone that's a professional bowler or amateur bowler. Yeah. Your mind gets programmed, and that's in your lower brainstem. And I just remember lying back, and they're like, "Ma'am, you're going to be going to sleep shortly." And I'm thinking, I I, I just have a week to go. <laughs> I really wanted to run it. She's like, "You'll have yeah. other ones to run." I don't yeah. So yeah, so she did the lumpectomy and then immediately they scheduled um, the first round of chemo. Again, I had two rounds, each was six weeks apart. Um, I did work full-time while I got that, Um, not only because I needed to work, but also that outlet was perfect for me. Um, I'm not someone that stays at home. I don't watch much television. I don't watch reality shows. I don't watch soap operas. I couldn't even tell you anything about The Bachelor or Bachelorette. It's just not my, I watch sports um, That's and the Food Network. That's about all, all that comes down to. So for me to stay at home would not have been right healthy for me. You know, my mind needed to be active.
0: Right. So was there kind of like a host of symptoms with all this treatment that you had to deal um, with? Like I oh, imagine absolutely. it was kind of hard to juggle it all, right?
1: Yeah, I started treatment right before christmas three weeks before so they said in three weeks you'll lose your hair so i again i'm i I had told you last week my brain is hardwired very much like a straight male where (laughs) i think very much logically and forgive me everyone listening if i sound too generalized but you know i think logically i don't really think emotionally i think emotionally later on um, but i just want to solve the problem tell my mind it's hardwired just solve the problem fix it you know, no. I don't need to hear about who did it, how did it, how it came about, just fix it. Um, and I'm logical. And then I deal with the emotional part later on privately. Um, so I've always tricked around. I, I think like a straight male and I'm trapped in this woman's body. But um, so I went ahead. I didn't care about losing hair. The bottom line to all that is I didn't care about losing hair um, because my hair had always been pulled back as an athlete is the last thing on my mind. I often wore a ball cap or a visor, you know, went out on the river. Um, it's just hair, as long as hair is not in my face when I'm working out, that's all that mattered to me.
2: Right.
1: So I didn't care about losing it. I thought, oh, right. I'm gonna get a fresh new head of hair. I needed it anyway, because the sun had damaged it anyway. So anyway, I, di- I didn't care, but I knew that was taking place. But it was at that point when I lost all the hair, then it really sucked in you have cancer Mm
2: -hmm. at
1: that point i was just really playing along i was going through the motions you know from being on the operating table which p.s i never in my life had ever thought i would get surgery i was fortunate enough to go to be you know an endurance runner to play softball um, basketball volleyball and then this sport of rowing i was a fortunate to go through it and never have gotten injured i never broke anything i never broke a rib i never pulled an intercostal um i did herniate a disc at one point but i was able to move through it but you know what i mean to have gotten through all that and my body never got hurt i was it's pretty amazing so, so i never thought you know i was like pretty God, rare i've never been on the operating table i wasn't the candidate to be on an operating table so um even going through that surgery, it hadn't really settled in that my God, you've got cancer. I heard it. Yeah. I was playing along. I was yeah. fixing it. I'm in orderly mode. I'm in analytical mode, scheduling everything. Just yeah, yeah. going. But then, once the hair was gone, boom, yep, I've got cancer. This is real. Yeah. So, I was just
0: planning and ahead, like, I'm going to get through it. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. What's da, nice da, da, da,
1: da, da. It's like planning out the marathon. I got to do this, got to do that, you know. It's like, yeah. okay, that's when it hit because all of a sudden I don't have hair. And P.S. not having hair in the wintertime when you're living in Philly or Ph- or Pittsburgh is not the optimal a Little situation shilly. because it's cold.
0: Might need a hat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I slept with a hat on. You, It's amazing how much heat you lose when you don't have hair. And I don't even have that much hair. I've had the very fine hair, but to have lost it... Um, That was a whole other experience. So then I ended up having to go shopping for a wig and when I actually found my wig, um, which the style is called the Jennifer, but that's what I wore um, once I lost the wig, once I lost the hair, because I still had to work and I didn't want to go around commando style. Um, Other people can do it, but actually this kept me warm. So that's one of the reasons I I wore it. Uh, And I kept it under the radar for a long time at work. Nobody knew really uh, and yeah and in fact the, the wig looks so natural that i would have professional hairstylists stop me on the street saying who does your hair wow um, so and i was in an environment where it wasn't uncommon in philadelphia um, or the northeast section for for women to wear wigs in fact it's more common now so it, okay. it didn't seem that odd that i was wearing a wig um, so i was able to keep it under wraps for a while but then of course my performance at work declined um, you know, mm-hmm. my veins were actually shot. I had black and blue marks all over my my arms. I looked like a heroin addict. My arms started to look like because that's what takes a beating on both arms. Um,
0: were you losing so weight as well?
1: I was dropping weight, and I had already was low. It was already fifteen percent body fat. Excuse me, twelve percent body fat for the um, marathon, and I was one hundred and fifty five pounds. And for someone like myself, who's you know six foot, six foot one, who's a true Viking body type, that's, that's as low as you want to go. You know, right. Um, And I've never been someone that's focused on being low in weight anyway, because of having been an athlete all my life. I've always been trying to be bigger. Yeah, stronger. Right, so to speak. So yeah, you lost, I lost three of weight. But then it actually increased. So then I went and I gained a tremendous amount of weight. And I went from I gained six dress sizes. So I went from being really lean and starving looking to all of a sudden my body started holding on to everything for survival.
0: And that, that was really
1: uncomfortable, not from a vanity standpoint. It was just like, I felt like all the time I had just had Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. Full feeling. Yeah. 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 Oh. Um, I had to buy all whole set of new clothes. Because I th- got was that... lit- literally six sizes.
0: Wow. Yes. Wow. So was that during... Treatment as well.
1: Yeah. Definitely. Did that happen too? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember going shopping with a like over another time. Um, because you know, and all and I actually had to go into these big, big and tall plus sizes, which is not normally my size. I had been a size 12 and all of a sudden I went up to a size 1X. So that was size 12, 14, 16, 18, 1x. Right. You know, I, I, I expected to be that size if I ever got pregnant. That would have been realistic. Right. I wasn't pregnant. So. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I um, just felt disgusting and ugly all the time. It was horrible.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that was very tough. So how long did the treatment last in total?
1: Um, I was done with everything by July. Of 2001.
0: So how long was that from start to finish?
1: Um, that would have been November. That would have been seven nine months. Pregnancy period nine months.
0: <laughs> and
1: uh, I, gone, I looked like I was pregnant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and yeah, the, uh, the cancer was was totally gone by then.
1: Correct. Yep. Yep. In fact, my surgeon was so outstanding that she when you go through the lumpectomy or any type of uh, cancer related surgery they go in the first time and um there is it they tell you that we may have to go back in if we don't get all of it Uh, but fortunately the first time I had the lumpectomy done she got it all Um, she's outstanding and I knew she was outstanding thanks to my intuition I just the moment I met her um, when I was going to get a biopsy I knew regardless of what was going to happen she was going to be the doctor for me so right. you know I applaud her for going in the first time and getting it out right because to have gone back in again would have been you know another stress producer
0: 100 percent. so where does that bring you like from then until today leading to becoming a life coach
1: Uh, Okay, so I went ahead and um, part of the way to sort of regroup and capture what went on during that I actually wrote a book from 2001 to four. Uh, It's, it's called one stroke rowing stroke at a time, just to get down on the paper get down into the computer everything that had gone on. Um, I didn't have the intention of necessarily having it published my again my intuition said give time, time. It's one of the quotes in the book um, to, to just sort of back away and allow the years to go on uh, before doing any publishing because it was, it was a heavy, heavy time period. Um, when you have to go every six months, during that time, 2001 to 2006, every six months, I'd have to go for a cancer screening just to see if the cancer is somewhere else or somewhere in the same area, which, right. for me, caused a recurrence of, of, you know, the nightmare that had gone on in 2000 and 2001. You know, today, they call it PTSD. Now, granted, I only thought PTSD happened to veterans that had been in the military. Again, it goes back to that whole theory that I had that, you know, the alcoholism came from those poor jet soldiers that had fought in the wars and they we didn't have the medical um medicine available to help them fortunately now we do you know so i thought ptsd was strictly something that happened to them. well i i learned again the 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 student that i am and the research that i did at philadelphia library that you know i was actually going through ptsd every time i would go for the cancer screening um, i'd go through it because you're always like what if And if it is cancer again, I'm going to have to go through this again. Or I might not if I don't want to, but it's a nightmare and it's always in the back of your mind. So I thought one of the best things for me to do to help me was not only to continue to increase my knowledge and read as much as I could and study as much as I could online, but also just to write. And I am not a writer by nature. Um, I'm highly analytical. Numbers um, are, are what I'm much more gifted at, but the writing was actually very therapeutic for me. Um, I started studying every other types of writing. Um, I did well in English in school to get the good grades, but I wasn't born to be a journalist. Right. I'm not a henry by any shape or means, Um, but I love to read. So I, you know, I had enough within me to actually get everything paper. So I wrote everything, wrote the book. I've had it um, licensed. It got everything underway and i just i've let it sit and what i've recently done thanks to the pandemics i've extracted every lesson i learned through there and in the book i have three main themes that i've sub themes that i focused on um in, a, in an effort to so help anyone else that reads it and one of which is um everything the wisdom i've gained from sports not just rowing but sports in general, um, and. Sp- because I had been an athlete all my life, I was able to figure out the solutions to help me get to where I am today, or right. to at least get me to two thousand six.
2: Yeah, right? yeah. Then
1: the other sub theme would be um, having grown up with a special needs older brother. Cerebral palsy has one long. Um, he's another. He's my hero, and he's another constant theme. You know, when I think about what he, his bad day is nothing near any bad day that I had. And he was one of the guiding lights in the back of my mind as to how I'm going to get through this. I can't complain. Yes. I've seen what he's gone through. Yeah. I no excuse. Get through it, fix it. Um, so that was one of the themes. Um, and then I've got another theme there's animal therapy. That's one of the themes. I'm a huge animal lover. I had started a pet sitting business at the time on the side while working full time um, to help out rowers and other people that traveled a lot and needed someone to look after their pets. So I've got a couple of sub themes in it. And, and in those sub themes, then I've extracted the wisdom because ultimately that's all that matters. I, I don't, like I said, I don't watch dramatic shows. I don't watch reality tv i'm living reality you know i've had people say to me do you ever watch cops back when i lived in philly yeah
0: yeah, yeah. And i was
1: like i don't need to i could stand out on my front porch and just kind of watch yeah just go outside i can <laughs> yeah. film it myself yeah yeah <laughs> I, I don't need to you know um when i got diagnosed survivor had just started that whole series and oh I, yeah i, um. I don't I got my own. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm living this. Yeah.
1: Uh, so I, I don't do drama. Um, so the I thought all that really matters are the lessons learned and that's yeah. all I want people to look, to look. So now I've been actively looking for a um, publisher a, a literary agent just to get it published. I People have said to me, why don't you self-publish? I don't want to self-publish because I've taken the time to actually write it. Um, you know, I was raised in, in a family and in an environment where um, academics is paramount. Being well-rounded is important. Having some sort of, you know, religious following, spiritual practice is important, but academics is paramount. So you know, for that, I just, I'd rather have a professional who's experienced actually just run with it and get it published. So that's been also on my... Um, active list here during the pandemic. Okay,
0: very interesting. And what is that? Uh, what is that process like? Just out of curiosity, to get published, are you just very sending hard. it out?
1: Yeah, sending it out. Just a lot of you know, like anything else. You just I send it out. I if I get rejected, I don't take it personally. I just keep going because I, mm-hmm. I do believe at some point someone's going to grab it. And I'm getting a lot of encouraging responses but there's just some people that just don't have the time right now. There's probably a high volume of people publishing now. And I I mean, I'm not a public figure. I'm not, I mean, I'm just a girl next door. So who used to be an athlete. So um, I don't have the power to, uh, or the lifestyle where I can just, you know, make it happen and ask someone to do it. So, but it'll happen when it's supposed to, it's just like anything else in life. You know, like I said, I'm very intuitive um definitely much very spiritual um so it'll it'll happen if you put the effort in it'll come forward and now right. is the great time you know because now i have the wisdom you know back then i was just so full of emotion from mm. it I, I didn't want to publish anything
0: you're right in the middle of it
1: right i don't you know yeah so there's something to be said about giving time time just i like that saying Allow And actually, it's not for me that's saying it's from a good friend of mine, Rob Robertson, who used to say that um, I met him while I was actually going through the cancer, he was working in the same company that I was. And he used to say, sometimes you need to give time time. And I've actually quoted him in the book, uh, as well as other people that are that have touched my life. So um, he was absolutely right.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's really wise. And I think I like what you're saying too about uh, like it'll happen when it's meant to happen. And just, and I think nowadays people people get caught up in like, you know, like especially starting out at something, they just feel like they have to, they're just going to jump in. It's all going to work out. But it's, it's really just about just continuing, keeping going with it and chipping away at it, keep trying. And eventually, if it's meant to happen, it'll happen.
1: Yeah, There's a process to everything and, and things will happen. It's like rowing a boat. You can't, um, you you push, uh, you accelerate the boat, you push the oars through the water, you accelerate it. But then there's a recovery part where you're recovering and you're letting the boat run underneath you at that racing speed and you can't disrupt it. You can't slow it down. Right. Um, so you gotta let it, you gotta just let it ride like rowing a boat. Gotta just let it ride and, and see when it comes to you. You cannot force it. Cannot. right
0: yes for sure so so you're working in the financial industry at this time like during that time um and then where did you work up in that industry right until the pandemic this year or last year i guess
1: um yeah i actually had just gotten hired um uh, well i started out as a as a temp because they wanted to try me out with a local um investment firm here uh, but They have since been having troubles because of the pandemic, so that didn't pan out. Um, But like I said, it I sort of seized the opportunity um, and followed my gut, followed my intuition, which I've done all my life, and thought, you know what? Let's just go forward with this launching the the life coaching, and the um, see where it goes. And as I said to you last week, you know I love your millennial generation. I'm so grateful for them because. There are two, two groups from what I've understood. I've researched your generation uh, as I do with everything uh, because everyone's talking about stuff that you know, a lot of us were raised not to talk about. So it's, yeah. And they're utilizing the social media, which quite frankly, when I was you know, working in the, the investment industry and that goes from 2001 you know, up until recently, I didn't use a lot of social because it would have worked against me. Mm-hmm. You know, I used LinkedIn, the professional setting, but I, I didn't use Facebook or Instagram that much. I mm-hmm. certainly uh, didn't post anything of my brother because I'm so protective for family members because I'm very protective. I'm like a German shepherd. If I were a dog, I think I'd be a German shepherd because um, I'm so protective. My ears are always like alert,
0: yeah. but I'm protective. Who's this person? <laughs> Who's this person?
1: Someone <laughs> at the door. so um yeah so i'm very grateful for the millennials because it's 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 allowing people like myself that had grown up you know with generations where you weren't supposed to talk about something to now freely you know where i couldn't even find help for the the alcoholic end, just so someone could talk to me freely confidentially as a sounding board and give me some sort of roadmap to follow so that I could move on from it. Because one thing I noticed with the alcoholism, and I don't mean to jump back to that, but it's it's true what they say in life, that if you don't deal with whatever issues, deep-seated, deep-rooted issues that you have, they're gonna keep showing up mm-hmm. one way or another in life yeah, until you deal with it. Um, 100%. So the fact that I, I actually wanted to help, just give me direction, coach me through it. I'm so coachable. Just. You know, I want everything down. I mean, yeah, desperately you, looking you, for a you coach. You know that about me. You know, I've got yeah. sitting out right here. Yeah. You know, just coach me through it. Tell me what to do. The fact that I couldn't find it, it's just you. you end up suffering in silence, and that's, that's yeah, by far to me a horrible way to exist. You know, to keep repressing everything and not being able to talk about it. You know. Yeah, a hundred percent. I grew up again in, during a generation where you know women didn't talk about like sanitary napkins. You know, talk no, about like, what it's not sanitary like, napkin. right? You know, you didn't talk about that stuff, you didn't talk about your time at month, you know. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, and yeah, I'm like, what's the big deal? Yeah, it's how really that's life you, you weren't yeah. supposed to talk about, like, you know, the idea of me asking a male family member to go get me products. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, or for me to get it, it was just back in the day. It was just, but that's what I grew up with is you don't talk about it, just handle it with class. <laughs> it's class. <laughs>
0: like,
1: it Need to go get my gift.
0: items. I'll be right back. Yeah, Can't say what there. It's are.
1: like I see some of the commercials on TV that I know are millennial driven. I'm like, my God, they're talking about everything on television. <laughs> yeah. <Wow. laughs> yeah. The world has really changed. You know, and again, I grew up when, when you didn't uh wasn't acceptable to be gay
2: you
1: know when Ellen finally came out the mid-90s although I was I mean I've been sports of my life so I was always of the minority I was one of the girls that was straight I never had a problem with it but um even back then you didn't talk about it
0: Mm. no I think it's amazing how the whole script is kind of shifted and is shifting on all that stuff. And that's what I try to do on this podcast. And, you know, you said like suffering in silence and that's like the thing that is basically my goal with this podcast is to help people share their story, give them a platform to do it so that other people will listen and feel like they're not alone. Um, Because that is the number one thing that I've come across and I've heard over and over and over. It was like, I'm the only one that's going through this. No one else is going through this. And then we're all just walking through life with blinders on thinking like we're alone and then little do we know we're all human we're all going through the same thing
1: oh yeah I can remember a couple of times um there was a church I ended up becoming a member of in Philadelphia when I was still going through treatment but I remember a time sitting in a in a large congregation and just feeling so alone and literally feeling like I was suffering in silence you know and I, yeah. and I knew God could hear me I knew a higher power could hear me Um, but it's a horrible feeling to be surrounded by people in a church or in a temple or in a mosque or you know in a hindu church and and to feel like you're alone yeah it's it's just not that's not healthy no right
0: no no and yeah and i think that's like there's so much good with social media and there's so much good with technology Mm -hmm. but i think also um like that's something that's you know, it's been talked about a lot, but like now I'm sure you see it in cities, people don't interact with each other as much. Right. Even just that small interaction, like with, uh, with a clerk, when you buy something at the store, like that, those things like matter. And, you know, sitting on the subway, I'm sure people don't talk very much to each other. Whereas like you take the phone away, like everyone's on their phone, like you're going to have a conversation. You're going to get bored. You're going to talk to people. You're going to like shoot the shit a little bit or, or meet somebody, you know? And then like, right it's it's just like you know and oftentimes people talk about living in big apartments buildings and they don't know anybody you know they just go from you know they go in go to their apartment and that's it but yeah we need connection we need to be we need support we need community and um yeah that's something that's you know i think that's a huge part of mental health and kind of a missing piece that oh, people yeah. feel today's
1: so many that suffer and they're you know I, I feel so badly for people that are born into this world they don't ask to be but they're born in with bipolar or schizophrenia or the clinical depression or a severe anxiety I feel sorry for people like that because again they don't ask to come into this world with it mm. unfortunately it's something they have to deal with right mm-hmm. and these are people that are often have extraordinary talents. I mean, if you just talk about the, the public names alone that I've said that they have bipolar, um, you know, it's Mariah Carey is one person that comes to mind. You know, extraordinary talent. Um, and they, they just need like a diabetic, like anyone else, they just need to be on some sort of medication I don't even like to call it medication. I call it like a vitamin or whatever they need to be on, a regimen to, to control it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because yeah. again, yeah, I, these people don't want to come in to this world with that. I can't imagine. I've mm-hmm. seen so many people struggle um, mm-hmm. with, with clinical depression to the point that they can't get out of bed, to the point that they're almost catatonic or someone that's got the bipolar. And the, it's like, I yeah. feel like you're walking on eggshells with them but at the same yeah. time, you want to help them, like, just go yeah. on something.
2: Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. There's
1: yeah. so many people that have extraordinary talent, not just musicians and artists, you know, but I'm sure in the legal field, you know, in the investment field, I've seen it. Um, that have these gifts and they're meant to use the gifts, but the the mental illness gets in the way of it. It paralyzes mm-hmm. them from being mm-hmm. able to live their purpose. And so I know mm-hmm. my purpose now. And one point, once upon a time, it was to be an athlete. Then it was to be in the investment industry and do my thing. Uh, but now I know it's to be a life coach and more importantly, to help people that have been on the other side of addiction. People saying to me, oh, I didn't know you were an addict. I'm like, no, I'm not an addict. I'm on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. I'm on the fence, the other side of the fence. Yeah. And I know I'm not the only one. So, right. you, know, you know, that's, that's, you know, I'm, I'm empathetic to addicts. I'm empathetic to people that struggle with some sort of chemical imbalance. You're born with a chemical imbalance. It's like you're born with diabetes, you know, or you're born with a handicap. You're born with poor vision. You're born blind. You're born deaf, whatever. Uh, you know, as long as people can find the help so that they can live a healthy prosperous life doing mm-hmm. whatever it is their true mission is mm-hmm. you know? yeah
0: I think that's super interesting I think about that a lot of too with uh, what I do like I'm a personal trainer and I, I'm starting to get in kind of like the life coaching stuff too and like I think that is the most rewarding part of my job even just as a personal trainer and not even getting into the life coaching stuff um, in the past like but just seeing someone kind of start at a and then like a year later they're at B and like, it's just starts with the health. It starts with the habits. It starts with the exercise. It starts with the mindset, but then it's amazing how like it trickles down into every other part of their life. And they're like a different person um, by the end of it, you know? And like, I think that's super rewarding to see them like, and it's just amazing how like when you do one thing, all of a sudden other things don't seem as out of reach, you know? And like when you talk about intuition, I feel like people usually have kind of like an intuition of what they should be doing or that inner pull to what they could be or what they should be or their talent or what they they could be more. And I really like to uh, inspire that. and I love seeing bringing that out in people because uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that's a huge part of mental health too. Like if you're not, there's no worse feeling I think than feeling like you're not doing enough, you know? Like just hanging out, chilling but you 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 have all these things like all these goals or all these aspirations to do things but you're not doing them and it keeps getting pushed back and then all of a sudden it's 10 years later and all of a sudden it's 20 years later and it's like the feeling of regret and not doing the things that um you know you have that inner pull towards i think that's a huge part of uh mental health today maybe you're just in a job and you just have this inner pull there should be more to life that i'm not being fulfilled and there's so many different things that go into that like community connections love, um, meaningful work, you know, all that stuff. And I like to capture that, some of that on here to kind of give it like maybe, you know, a guideline to different people's ways of finding that. But I think like finding that path, I think that's just so inspiring and amazing when people do it.
1: Yeah, the light bulb, you can see the light or the soul light within them. And when you were talking about the, the personal training, I, my mind was going back to, I was listening to you actively, but I my mind went back to, when I was going through the treatment, one of my uh, girlfriends from the rowing community, who was managing the boathouse, said to me, "You know, I've got these pr- working professional men—just a handful of them—that want to learn how to row more proficiently so that they can race." And that was an absolute gift to me because it gave me an opportunity to coach. It gave me an opportunity to then take everything that I had learned and verbalize it in a way that each one of them, each one of them being different type of learners, right? I had a visual learner, I had an auditory um, in a way that they could understand it and then work in unison together in one vote. And that was an extraordinary experience of me to again, be able to verbalize to these gentlemen and actually see their confidence continue to build practice to practice, race to race um, and just see that light they'd have these aha moments, literally, Mm -hmm. on the river. And I'm like, yeah, that's it, that's it, you got it, you got it, and to Mm -hmm. see that discovery, and then to see that transfer then into their their personal lives with their girlfriends, their wives, you know, in their professional setting, it was just, it's it's such an, I I have so much um, admiration to teachers, whether it's, you know, elementary, high school, college coaches, because that gift of being able to, transform someone's life and build that confidence show them something that they are able to do that otherwise they may not have thought of that's Mm -hmm. just priceless literally priceless it is Um, so i loved doing that so much um i eventually had to stop because just i had to get focused more on work and the market fell and so i really had to focus in on that but that that was a lot and then As you were saying, giving back to the community, while I was working full-time in the investment industry, there was always something inside of me. The little creativity that I have, I'm I'm definitely dominant left brain, but there is a creative bit on on the right side, but I wanted to be involved in the cancer community one way or the other. So I co-founded the Row for the Cure in Philadelphia in the early 200s, ran that for a couple years with uh, the women there and then I, I did a fortune 500 level for live strong um but i always on um, part-time did extra work for them and that fulfilled that need because i knew there was a need within
2: mm.
1: you know for something bigger yeah part of something bigger and why not cancer since yeah. i just walk the walk yeah know? yeah 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 so so that's why another reason why i'm enjoying the life coaching now because now i can continue in that area, but now on a deeper level. I can really yes. dive in and take yeah. my psych, take my life coaching, take all this research that I've done. Which again, the blogs are on my website um, and just really dive in. And as I mentioned to you last week, with my approach with everyone is I do treat everyone as unique as a snowflake. No, right. even though you can subcategorize people, I'm not I'm as everyone's situation is different. My situation's different. Um, and everyone else's. So they're all gonna get a different type of roadmap right. to help them.
0: Right. Yeah. I think I think you have to do it that way. Yeah. Um so so where do you start with um I guess everyone else is everyone's different, but um what are the, the main things you're helping um non-addicts? that have someone close to them or whatever the situation is that it's an addict, what sort of things do you help them with?
1: First and foremost, learning how to safely detach. Okay. And how to start to focus on self-preservation and learning the science of the codependency that they're participating in because it's a two-way street in order to break that, that relationship so it's a more healthy level it's very hard um, when you have someone that you very much care about to see them go through that type of disease it's like a slow suicide Mm -hmm. to watch people struggle but ultimately they have to learn that they have to choose to do it on their own Mm -hmm. and that can be very hard particularly for parents parents with these children that now have children that are addicted to opioids Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah it's hard it's it's so hard on a parent to learn how to cut it off and learn that it's okay to do it Um, Mm -hmm. and and to learn that they have to be preserving themselves you know not just emotionally but financially um you know i had i when i was going through in studying all that I went to people said go to Al-Anon go to Al-Anon so I went to two different um, groups in Philadelphia at the time and um, I just went in there and again I'm very intuitive and all I just felt were these people that have been victimized financially emotionally on such a deep level um, that you know I couldn't go in there with my list and ask questions but it was just it felt it felt like I was in a graveyard in a way because it just The energy was just so depressed you know Mm -hmm. these people desperately needed help and out of curiosity curious person that i am i said you know what's it like on the aa side so i played the game i went into several aa meetings to see what what the what are they talking about you know and the energy was was higher but the energy level was much higher because these people no longer had the burden of the addiction and yeah. they had one another that were supporting one another, and they were talking about all these things that they wanted to achieve in life, and they were going to do. So they were already on the the highway to healing and achieving. And um, you know, it was as though it was as though I was walking into a room with sunlight, as opposed to being in a room that was completely gray and dark. And so the clouds were so thick that I couldn't see through it. Wow. So these addicts
0: kind of like hit the rock bottom, right? And then that's what usually and then that's what so they're on the upswing
1: and and once they get the help that they need um you know they they it's extraordinary to see them you know build a new life again particularly like i said you know with extraordinary talents that they may have to be actually able to freely live their life they want to without that vice
0: right um so you compared the two and then that's kind of where you've seen the gap.
1: That's where I've seen the gap, you know, and again, I was in these Alana meetings, but I couldn't ask these questions. I was dying. It was like being back in church again. I was suffering in silence. I had these questions. Will someone just give me the recipe of what I'm supposed to do? You know, I've been mm-hmm. an athlete my whole life. I need a coach. Coach me. I've had these extraordinary yeah. coaches that knew exactly working with me or working with any other teammate. know how to psychologically um motivate us how to plan out the race you know they knew you know meter by meter what we needed and that's what kind of what i was expecting when i was getting help that at least someone would be able to say this is what you need to do and so one of the things i'm helping is that detaching and understanding that it's okay to detach and it's necessary You know, it's like the old cliche, if the airplane's going down, the parent needs to put the mask on themselves first before Mm -hmm. the child. But the tendency is to put it on the child.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, You have to be counterintuitive.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, that makes sense. Can't pour for an empty cup. You can't just, yeah. Yeah. That must be super hard, though, to try to convey that message. You can't, like, especially with the with the child, for example, you know, cause they'll do anything for your child, but it's.
1: When, when you take the time to get to know each individual, and this goes back to my snowflake analogy, and I'm able to get into their heads and talk with them for a while, I can figure out the trigger points to get them to see it. It's like back at the rowing, <clears throat> when I was coaching rowing, you know, I had these five gentlemen working professionals you know, two of which were from an, originally from another country. One was from the UK, the other one was from New Zealand. Um, and they all had different walks of life. And they all needed to be coached differently. They were all very talented and brought something to the boat. You know, my, my uh, one guy from New Zealand was a distance swimmer. And I used to joke that he had three lungs. I mean, he showed up to the boat with all this incredible conditioning. It just takes years to develop. And so I loved having him on because he just had all this cardiovascular. And so I didn't have to worry about the training with him. I had just had to worry about the technique. Right. Name of the game with him was technique, you know, where I had, uh, you know, other guys that, uh, you know, needed to be taught a different way. But then ultimately the idea was then to get them to work in unison in one boat. Mm. So it's like a symphony coming down the race course. Yeah. Um, so had that training and learning how to work with them in particular, you know, as well as being in the investment industry. In the investment industry, I was often the key contact in the office, so I got to know the clients, and it didn't take me long to be able to sort of get to know their personalities, anticipate what they were going to request, know the personality types, um, know their trigger points. So. You know, it's just kind of years of experience of of um, studying people that I'm able to now work with them in this this realm and get into their heads and train them how to, um, for example, detach and pay attention to what they're saying and, and know specific words that are kind of they're going to have that light bulb moment. Okay, that's what you mean by detach.
0: That's really yeah.
1: You know, like just by explaining the fear of not detaching the, okay, well, if you don't, this is probably, these are ideas of what can happen. And when Mm -hmm. you, when you explain it to them in a, in a, you know, professional straightforward manner, many people don't think about the, the, oh, this can happen. If I don't detach, this is where I could possibly be five years from now. Yeah. In a worse situation.
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: When I even on a numerical standpoint, if I were to you know run numbers by from a parent explaining to me how much money they've spent, I'd be like, okay, let's let's just run the numbers. You spent how much where? And then all of a sudden they have it on paper how much money they've spent on this child. It's it becomes evident to them mm-hmm. a change needs to take place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so would that be um do you find too like i think you mentioned it before like there's also conflict between so maybe you have two clients so that both parents it can kind of make people clash heads maybe they have different ideas is that something a dynamic you have to work with as well
1: yeah yeah you can um have you know a a mother figure that that truly um is not able to fully detach is not able to create the boundaries it, I when I am talking about detaching I mean creating the boundaries whether it means having them removed from the house. Um, you know, removing them from from certain family events, it's creating that hard, tough um, life sort of boundary system so yes that is a challenge so that's then a, another challenge within that dynamic of, of Uh, enabling them to see eye to eye and coming to some sort of common ground that they can both use as a parent team um, to, to again, detach from their child's uh, challenge and and persevere and have sort of a healthier life. Mm
0: -hmm. And that's ultimately what's best for the person
1: like they need to think what's best for them
0: right yes
1: that's that's the hardest thing is people need to learn to think about worry about yourself
2: right
1: at some point you need to not worry about an individual anymore when they're going through an addiction and it's harder for for people some people to to get that mindset to worry about themselves to let someone go
0: right yeah, because like you said, it's their choice, and they're the only ones going to make the choice to, to make a change. Um, and then transitioning to, uh, to cancer, um, I know you kind of help out with the financial side of that as well, right?
1: I direct people. I'm re- very resourceful. As you know, I found you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, you, uh, you did. And in all of my searching, I'm very resourceful. And I am the type of individual that um, I'm, as long as they want the help and they are actively making the strides to make the positive changes in their, their lives that I'm recommending, um, I'm very resourceful in finding them the specific say financial connection or insurance connection or resources that they knew need that can help them continue on the path towards complete recovery, complete health. I'm willing to go that distance. You know, when I'm, when I'm done speaking with them over Zoom or over the phone, um, I'm b- happy behind the scenes to dig in and find the other connections that they will need that are instrumental in them being able to obtain full healing because it it doesn't just happen with me. And I also I don't I can't coach desire. It's one thing I learned from coaching and I, I you know I remember seeing in a movie called Prefontaine is a coach cannot coach desire. So as long as they have the desire to want to head down that very challenging path towards healing um, i'm with them i'm the ride or die but uh, and i will find them the other resources that they need because it's not just myself that can help there are other people that are out there I, you know i found all the resources i needed on my cancer journey so that i could get all the information that i needed um, right. so that i can understand how to heal but also all the, all the community resources that were available to me. They didn't just hand me everything in a folder. I had yeah. to find some of that stuff out on my own. They did give me some stuff, but you know there were, more, there were more avenues out there that would help me. So being that I am actually very resourceful, um, I, I'm more than willing to do that.
0: Right. I think that's beautiful and uh, in the United States as well, I know it's a little bit different than Canada here where your healthcare system is, basically, if you don't have uh, health insurance, I'm sure it's a whole process um, to to go through insurance, um, but if you don't have healthcare insurance, then um, you just have to pay for it, right?
1: Right, yeah, it's very challenging. That was um, one of the several uh, um, avenues I had to, to deal with was, um, managing my own insurance and paying off any medical bills just from the surgery alone. Uh, mind you, when I graduated Drexel from my own pocket, I only had $10,000 that had needed to be paid off. So because you know I had been working, um, I was able to pay that off very quickly and also get a boat. Remember I said I bought a rowing boat. Yes. Um, when I was done with the cancer, Surgery alone, I found myself thirty thousand dollars in debt. Now, to some people, that may not seem like much, but to me, that's again very um, math-driven, highly analytical. You know, I grew up my my. We've got a CPA in the family. We've got a chemical engineer in the family. We're very meticulous on on paying bills. Um, That was a lot of money to me. Um, That only added to the PTSD. Like, Mm. oh no, I got to pay this off. Now, granted, I was working, right, and I'm in the investment industry, so I was able to figure that out. But you know, had I had I been predominantly right brain dominant and not had any math skills, that could have been a real nightmare. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was able to pay that off, and again, I'm very resourceful and understanding on finding the help that I need to sort of guide me through that. Yeah, you know, so there are many many uh, organizations out there that guide. Um, cancer patients and their families toward uh, being financially free from any financial burdens. There are a lot of them out there in the United States. Um, And again, I'm happy to dig in and find the appropriate ones for individuals in their their area. One of the beauties, oh, it just dawned on me. I had to get on tamoxifen as most women do for breast cancer. That would have been, I wouldn't have been able to afford it in the United States, but do you know where I was able to find it? In your neck of the woods, right in Canada. Oh, really? I actually found um, a doctor that was prescribing it um, for like $4 for the prescription. And he would mail it to breast cancer survivors like myself. So That's beautiful. To be able to pay for that tamoxifen, which at the time was fairly pricey, Um it would have been a challenge for me, but I was resourceful and found someone in Canada.
2: Wow!
1: <laughs> and only spent like four dollars every time. So that's awesome. That was great because that was at the time, and I don't know about now, but I know at the time that was a critical drug for me to get on.
0: Oh, Canada!
1: <laughs> <And> <laughs> Canada so, so that that was you know that just shows how resourceful I am. Like I will mm. I will dig in and I will find it. Um, because you know, it's, it's just, it's not all the answers are going to come from me, but I can certainly find other answers if I don't specifically have it or find other avenues that can help you. There are many people that are willing to help
2: Mm
1: -hmm. both sides, cancer and non-addiction if you research.
0: So, um, apart from financials, what are the sort of things that you help cancer patients with?
1: Um, doing that deep dive into the deep-rooted issues to find out what caused it now granted a lot of people it's genetics but what i've discovered in doing the non-addict life coaching is there are similar um, issues that are stemming from the cancer patients so codependency being in a personal um, life or in a you know professional world where there's a lot of manipulation um, toxic shame the biggest one it's the biggest um, on both sides that's one of the biggest uh, issues i see repeatedly coming up or people having repressed toxic shame to things that they learned growing up with a specific conservative society um, or things that they've learned to repress in in their family dynamics growing up um, or even in their professional life, there's a lot of toxic shame. So those, those areas very similar to the non-addict side, I'm finding surfacing with the cat cancer patients.
0: What are some examples of toxic shame?
1: Um, toxic shame. Good question. Toxic shame. And that's some of the information I gave you. Um,
0: that you've come across
1: example of toxic toxic shame um a lot of it is emotional so it's a example of toxic shame there are women that will find a lump will go to a doctor it's been confirmed there are a lump and will not tell their husband for wow. Fear of rejection
0: wow
1: right and i will say from my experience Going back then, I was single at the time when I initially got diagnosed, but I met a lot of women who were married who were not necessarily telling their husband because they feared they would be rejected, that there would be a divorce of some sort. That's, that's a deep-rooted issue. And if they are in fear of being rejected because of that, that tells me that there's an even deeper level of of something toxic going on within that, not just that marriage, um, but also um, probably from their past. Yes. For them to come to that idea, yeah. to not talk about it. Because when I was diagnosed, I specifically told my family I didn't have any toxic shame in it. I didn't want to tell people because I'm not someone that likes to um, alarm anyone. I was very careful about who I told because it wouldn't leak but um yeah that was that was interesting to me you know sit in a room and with a bunch of women we're all getting mammograms and knowing that some of them if they find something are not going to tell their husband Mm
2: -hmm.
1: it makes me i i mean i feel empathetic to the husband like how would he feel if he didn't know that because i've worked in a male dominated industry the investment industry at the time for me was particularly male dominated um you know i've been surrounded by male athletes all my life and I'm empathetic to the men. Like they would want to know as scary as it would be. So of course that, they that was, would. Yeah. 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 That was, that was very interesting to me mm-hmm. coming across that to hide it.
0: Yeah. It's, it's one true.
1: thing to protect your children and to wait yeah. and tell them, right. But if you've got a partner in life, even if you're not married, but you're in a committed relationship, you got to let them know. Mm-hmm. Then there's the um, issue that I dealt with, that again I saw the women dealt with, is the inability to have children. That was a whole other um, emotional roller coaster for me to go through, as I ended up not being able to have children as a result of the aggressive chemotherapy. Uh, and so for a woman, that's very hard to wrap your head around. And people say, "Well, you still have eggs." I'm like, uh, "They're destroyed. They, I had tests done." Um, and it, it became clear that it was, it was not um, safe for me to have children. So um, meeting women that have been like myself, unable, unable to have children, maybe they already have children, but they had expected to have more. It's still um, a very important issue to talk about confidentially. Yeah. Because that's, yeah. that's a life changer for women. You know, yeah. I had always envisioned having little athletes, of course. Yeah. Little analytical athletes, not little because really no one in my family's little and I was never little, but you know that's that's kind of what I thought. And so that vision that I had was wiped away. Right. Um, you know, I had only wanted two. I didn't need a huge family. Um mm-hmm. I just thought one or two, and that's good. I don't need a whole table full of children. Um So you know, but that I had to come to grips with that, and so that's Mm -hmm. another issue that I've worked with with women. And then again, they have to tell their husbands that. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, and
1: um, yeah, I'm sure many of the husbands didn't care. They just want the wife healthy. At the end of the day, they just want their their spouse, their chosen partner in life, their the love of their life to be healthy.
2: Yeah, there
1: are plenty of children that can be adopted just in the United Mm -hmm. States alone. Yeah. So that's another issue that, um, that again, I felt personally uh, shameful. I had to get over that.
0: What was that journey like for you? I imagine, cause like the, the, biological, um, the biological clock and the biological um, feeling that I need to reproduce for women, um, I'm sure it was hard to kind of deal with.
1: Well, you know, that, well, that was part of the reason I stopped rowing when I do, because I was 29, and I was like, oh, I think it's time to wrap it up, because when a woman is, from my experience, and I'm sure many other women know this, is when you go on to the next decade, or you're preparing to move on um, to the next decade, you know, 39 going 40, or I just turned 50 in October, it's, it's um, innate for us to start in in the back of our minds, thinking about the future. So when I was in my mid-20s, you know, tip 27, innately, I'm thinking children, family. Yeah. When I'm done rowing, am I going to, am I going to get an MBA? You know, what's my plan of action? So when I stopped rowing in that December of 99, that was one of the things in the back of my mind is, you know, enough of this, Time to go to a new chapter. Run on. a
0: marathon and have some kids.
1: <laughs> Run a marathon because you'll be in better shape. A lot of my friends, um, I was learning from them from the rowing community would be active in, in a marathon or triathlon because it would make it easier for them to get pregnant. And then it would be in a better condition to carry that child. It's brilliant. On, as far as I'm concerned, these women were brilliant to think that way. So I was of the same mentality. Okay, I'm going to be in really good shape and make the pregnancy easier. It makes it easier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I had to come to grips with that. And that was, that was a shocker. It's that's another like shocker, very much like getting the diagnosis and I'm driving to work. Yeah. It's a jolt to put it mildly.
0: So what was that process like for you? And what are the things that helped you? Um, and was it like a process over a certain amount of time or?
1: It was over, over amount of time. It was, it was like a reoccurring um, nightmare flashback You know? mm. work and allowed me to get through it. Um, right. Because by the time that market fell in 08, I was pretty much past it. It was just the reality,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and I rationalized it. I thought, well, the you end know, logical Side. well, it's probably just as well because I don't want to have a child and then have the cancer come back. Mm. I would feel worse. I have the child and the cancer comes back and then I die. I, I don't want to leave a child and a husband behind.
2: Mm.
1: Um, because there, even though I was past the five-year mark, there was always that concern. Does that make yeah. any sense? No, so, of know, course it that, does. I, I think... rationalized it. I rationalized it.
0: Yeah. And was that you said um, you had to get tests every six months for until 2009, did you say?
1: 2006.
0: 2006. Um, so. And
1: then it was every year after that.
0: Okay. And then is that still till now that you do it every year?
1: Um, I'm supposed to be getting it done every year.
0: Okay. Um, so. What was that process like, like having that reoccurring kind of nightmare and thoughts about cancer coming back?
1: Um, It's paralyzing emotionally. It stops me in my tracks. Um, Even if I'm at work and I'm doing well with whatever task I have, um, it's, it's always in the back of your mind and it's unstable. It's like walking on eggshells what if what if and you're just looking forward to getting done with that test sigh of relief and then move on but i would immediately go in the back of my mind and in a grocery list format as i do once i write something down very much so it's stuck in my head i'm one of those people that if i write down a grocery list and i go to the grocery store and i forget the list guess what i haven't forgotten (laughs) it's there
0: okay okay
1: so, the whole list of everything that I had to organize during 2000 and 2001, that list is there. So, I'm already going through that list. This is what I'm going to have to do. This is what I'm going to have to do. This is whatever. And, and I'm, in a way, sort of oh, setting, okay. yeah. setting myself up for success. Mm. I go automatically through my list and I'm setting up for success so that I am prepared should that be.
0: Yeah. So it's situation. not going to take me off guard because I'm going to be prepared. I already know what to do and how to do it. If it this is a yes, this I'm prepared. Yeah. Yeah.
1: If there's if there's yeah, I'm prepared. And that that's for me in my own experience in life. That's kind of the name of the game in life. Try to be mm-hmm. as prepared as you can. Mentally mm-hmm. prepared, financially prepared. Being prepared is part of the game. If you're prepared, mm-hmm. and the inevitable comes your way some of that preparation is still going to help you Mm -hmm. strictly if it's mentally prepared Mm -hmm. and that's the athletic side i'm mentally prepared prior to a race you know going down a a race course two thousand meters they used to say there are seven different ways that you could race down the course and cross the finish line first right there are seven different ways but within those seven ways there are a multitude of situations that could go on that you have no control over all of a sudden you could be rowing into a severe headwind or a crosswind that's going dis- to disturb the boat a little bit um, you know you could have a flock of geese suddenly come by and you thinking to yourself am i going to decapitate or do i keep going um, you know you could it could suddenly start raining in the Melva race if you know if you're at the starting line and it looks ominous out like it is going to rain it could suddenly start hailing well, guess what? You keep going.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so there's so much that positive that I gained from being a racer um, on the rowing course, more so than being in track and field that really helped me sort of mentally prepared. So every time I went to the starting line, I was prepared for the weather. I was prepared for anything that could come down my way during that you know mile and a quarter is what it ended, ends up being. You know right. i've been in races smaller races where someone's in a motor launch and they decide to gun it and all of a sudden there's a swelling weight going across the entire six lanes and wow. if you're going down the course at a racing speed and you're you're moving cruising through it say 34 strokes a minute and all of a sudden you've got wake, weight you even need to manage through that you need to work through it and keep going some jerk decided to step on the motorboat and they, you know gas pedal and gun it um and all of a sudden you're you're rowing in the swell or you know there's all of a sudden a cross rain Rain, It starts raining and hailing i've had that happen i've had the hail come rain Mm -hmm. come and all of a sudden it turns to hail and you're not expecting it Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you need to finish it
0: yeah this is building uh resilience through preparation
1: resilience and preparation that's the key so all that that i had learned um was already trained in my, and in my lower brainstem. And it, it, you know, every six months I was prepared. I was set. Mm. This is the game, big game day. It's a performance time. I'm ready.
0: And so recently um, you, they found, they did find another tumor, right?
1: Yeah, it's benign. It's called a meningoma. um, M E N I N G I O M A um, in my right side of my brain it starts at the ear canal the right ear canal and extends close to halfway across my face Um, and I just reached my 20th year of being cancer free like I said in October Mm -hmm. didn't even worry about the fact that I was turning 50 to be honest I didn't think about celebrating it. I told my family I mean we're going through a pandemic so I, I honestly didn't care Um, And I honestly stopped really celebrating birthdays when I hit 35. Um, So, you know, I said to them, please don't send me anything. I don't want to see 50-year-old cards coming my way or any joke cards or joke toys. Just don't even do that. Because really all that mattered was that I was reaching this 20-year point. Yes. That's just a number. I don't feel 50 anyway. I really don't. I feel 40. So you know i was gung-ho for that 20 year mark and i had told some friends about it i'm like i'm coming up to it and so i had all these ear situations that thanks to the pandemic i became more alert to Um, tinnitus which is the ringing in the ear you know heads up to everyone if you hear ringing in the ear it doesn't necessarily mean that someone's talking about you (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. um,
1: it could be tinnitus uh,
0: it could be uh, could be yeah, or it could be you know some I, could I be be
1: people i don't know that many people so i know people aren't talking about me
0: <laughs> everybody's talking ringing about in you. the ear that must be some popular
1: <laughs> um
0: just nonstop. You know, and
1: i had a lot of ear i thought i just had a major infection so i went and i got i went to a a well-known um uh, Doctor's office and the ENT um, department here in Pittsburgh, Allegheny General Hospital. And I thought, you know what? They'll give me a really good oral antibiotic and drops. That's all I was looking for. You know, See if there's something in there, pull it out. Maybe it's just a bunch of wax and, and I move on. And so with, with any appointment like that, you get routine tests, you get a hearing test, different types of hearing tests, and then they want you to get an MRI just to cover all bases for insurance purposes. So I played the game and long story short, and the MRI, that's when the meningoma showed up. Um, And it's one of those things that I've actually, I wouldn't have done this 20 years ago, but I posted it on social. So just to show you how far I've come in life, you know, 20 years ago, no one saw my my letter saying that you have cancer. It's a 2.8 centimeter lump. But today, that just shows you how far I've come. I'm actually posting that, so people are aware of it. Um, yes, yeah. that it's legit. So yeah, I'm gonna get. Um, I'm scheduled this coming Tuesday, a week from today, to get it removed. So that'll be good.
0: Wow. Yeah. yeah. And how do you feel about going into that?
1: Well, again, <laughs> I never thought I'd be on the operating table. So. <laughs> back to my mindset before i would turn 30 is you know i'm just not someone that's going to get surgery i'm not even someone that in my mind would would ever get you know um what's it called plastic surgery yeah it's just not in my my mindset um so fortunately because i have the experience right and i have it all written in a book i've already gone through it and i'm like the athlete in me is mentally prepared. because again, mental prep is most of the game. Um, I'm already came to terms with the fact that I'm going to completely lose hearing on this side. Um, but I'm fine because it's been since October. So it's a long period of time for me to be mulling through it. Um, I, I did go back through my book, my notes in my book to remember what it was like to on surgery day all the procedures along to kind of mentally prepare myself, the athlete. Um, so I'm ready. I'm ready to get it out of my head too, because the side effects are, I don't sleep well um, at night. I mean, there's, there are just a number of side effects that come with it. Fainting. I'm not someone that would faint. I'm not even someone that would get necessarily starstruck. Unless it's Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks, I would definitely be <laughs> starstruck if I met him. I am not someone, I am someone that's always had sort of very low blood pressure and I don't get starstruck so um you know I'm not someone that would faint and I've been having these constant fainting spells it's okay to laugh so
0: Do you love me Beth
1: <laughs> <Horace Trump. laughs> that's funny <laughs> that's when I would be starstruck uh, yeah I you know, feel like I was gonna faint
2: yeah, so I'm yeah,
1: yeah. excited to get rid of these side effects and just to press on with life.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And I've already so,
1: asked them like what to expect the next six weeks, so again, six, mentally, six weeks recovery. So again, I'm mentally prepared, because what is the name of the game in life? Being mentally prepared, right? Preparation. So anticipation, preparation,
0: resilience, resilience. So, um, sense of six, humor. Sense of humor. <laughs> There's more, it's a long uh, list. <laughs> dry wood, clean water. <laughs> um, so, uh, so six weeks, and did they say like what the recovery would be like? Will it be a process, and
1: um, it'll be a process. Yeah. yeah, now I've been training for this. <laughs> so, when I got the diagnosis and I realized I would get surgery. Although I had been working out throughout the pandemic, I wasn't going to the gym anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I started working out more heavily okay. with the okay. kettlebell yeah. in ways that I could without, um, to my ability. It's, it's not where it was. Uh, I've right. had to stop running. I've had to stop doing things that because of this. But um, the athlete right. in me said, well, we need to train for this.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> that's what yeah, I've, yeah. Done. I've been training well, I'm,
0: sure, I'm sure you'll thank yourself right just some anything to make it easier well, and make your body more yeah, resilient i think
1: that's why I survived the cancer. that's why i survived the cancers because i was in such great condition mm-hmm. i don't think i really don't think had i not been that thorough of an athlete i don't it, it's harder for women in their early stages most women that are diagnosed in their 30s don't survive mm. that's that's wow. specifically proven Wow. At least back when I was, when I was diagnosed.
0: Wow. Um, so, where could people find your services, Beth, if they would sure. like coaching from you?
1: Everything is listed on my website, um, selfreliant.info. And there they can learn how to contact me. There again are those blogs that I told you I did research for at CMU. Um, So that's where they can find everything. I will attempt to post when I can. Um, I just, I have been using a different method to find, an old school method to find clients uh, rather than just constantly posting on LinkedIn or other social media. I understand the importance of it, but the method, the old school method that I've been using being resourceful and finding clients um, or finding podcasts works for me so i'm just kind of going with that
0: okay and And i
1: will be available um basically the second week in april people can start contacting you then i'm going to be mia for a while
0: yeah but you'll be back better than ever yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry um, did you say something no. <laughs> i just have one ear to work with that's all i'll be leaning in like this yeah. all
0: right go ahead i <laughs> <laughs> this one just kidding. <laughs> um,
1: i was <just laughs> can you hear me now
0: i <laughs> <Just> yelling um <laughs> i want to say uh thanks so much beth for coming on and um I'm sharing your story and, and reaching out. I really appreciate it.
1: Sure, thank you, fellow Libra. Which, by the way, we have the same birthday, which I thought was really ironic.
0: I know October fifth. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty wild. Pretty wild. Yes, Libra squad here.
1: There's a right woman, here. With a, an Olympian a girl girlfriend of mine that I call the birthday buddy. She has the October five. I'll have to send you her link so you can realize that you're in good company
0: yeah kate
1: split is october five really titanic yep
0: damn
1: google october <laughs> five
0: there's a club there
1: is, there's i didn't know there was a club i country. like this
0: i like this
2: <laughs> part of the alumni i didn't
0: even know Exactly. <laughs> um So I'm going to uh, send you some salts from our sponsor. It is the Prince Edward Island uh, Sea Salt Company. Um, So there's four different kinds of uh, cooking sea salts and um, 40% 40 of proceeds go to mental health here on uh, Prince Edward Island. Um, So everybody could definitely go check them out. And uh, I just wanna say thanks so much for coming on Beth. And um, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing.
1: Oh, I'm honored. Thank you so much.
0: All right. Have a great day.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.